week of January 24th, 2021, this is Showbiz Sandbox, episode 526, the podcast that brings you all the dirt on the news making headlines around the entertainment world. In Los Angeles, I'm Jace Berling Reich. And in Chippewa, Michigan, I'm Michael Giltz. And I have to ask, why are you in Chippewa, Michigan? Well, you must not be a fan of Freaks and Geeks. That is the classic TV show, and that's where the show was set, Chippewa, Michigan, just outside Detroit. It was set in the early 1980s. It only, well, only 12 episodes aired, I think. It only made 18 or 19 of them. One of the best shows of all time. No exaggeration. Great yeah, it's a show. Shame none, it's a shame that none of those uh, actors and actresses uh, <laughs> ever went on to do anything. I mean, all of them. All of them. Uh, there's one actor who has not done a lot yet. Everybody else has had significant success in front or behind the camera. All the freaks and all the geeks. The geeks had a harder time of it. but they. Were, I mean, it's amazing when you look down that list. Uh, it's a great show. It hasn't been available for a long time. But right now, you can go to Hulu and stream Freaks and Geeks with the original music. So when people say to me, hey, what show should I watch? Or what show do you like? What you Freaks and Geeks. You like good television drama? It's funny. They put it in the comedy category. There's a lot of humor. But it's a real show. It's a drama. It's got a lot of heart to it. It's really well done about the travails of high school. Very realistic. Very good show. All-star cast. All of them knew. Uh, it was nominated for three Emmys, and it won one. It won Best Casting in a Comedy, a righteous choice by the Emmys in, in picking that out. It should have won Best Comedy as well, but still, that was a, it's a great show. I highly recommend you check it out. A long time, there's a list as long as my arm of shows I want to see that aren't available easily. You can actually buy a box set of Freaks and Geeks, but that's a huge commitment unless you're already a fan, of course. But there are other shows like The Muppet Show, bizarrely. Why that hasn't been available, it must be music rights issues. But they put out every season on DVD, except they stopped after the third season. So you had seasons one, two, and three, but not four and five. So I have the first three seasons. But again, Disney Plus has come through. They've got all these libraries, and they're saying, hey, let's get these shows out there. So now The Muppet Show, starting in February, February 19th, the entire run of The Muppet Show will be available for streaming on Disney Plus. It's a lot of stuff coming to streaming, and if it rescues shows like Freaks and Geeks and The Muppet Show, that gives me you know, courage for the future. Maybe we'll get to see The Paper Chase, I'll Fly Away, that should go to Peacock. You know, I guess it depends who owns the catalog, but my God, let's get this stuff out there. And you may be wondering, okay, you know, if you don't know Freaks and Geeks, what is the cast they speak of? Well, <laughs> okay, first of all, this, uh, this television series uh, by Judd Apatow, okay, so let's start there, okay, he was the creator of, and writer on it, uh, Linda Cardellini, uh, James Franco, Seth Rogen, Jason Siegel, to name but a few. Yeah, and everybody else, you know, I, I wasn't sure if the actor who played uh, one of the geeks um, his name is uh, uh, Martin Starr, and he played Bill Haverchuk. And I thought the—I mean, I thought the guy had the craziest like rhythm. And he was like De Niro on that show. His readings were so great; he was so good. And I thought, oh my god, this guy's. But he's grown up, and he—he he had a big role on Silicon Valley. He played Bertram Gilfoy, Gilfoyle on Silicon Valley, and he's had roles in other films. You know, and and it's just—it's uh, amazing. All these people have had success, really. You go up and down the list, and it's just unbelievable. 
And, and I have to say his readings on Silicon Valley are similar. They're just very uh, deadpan. Oh, I've never watched it. So it, the fact that he's on it makes me go, well, you know what? I'm going to watch that show now. So that's yeah. a very good show. I, I've so heard. So Freaks yeah. and Geeks, check it out. So if people want to check out Freaks and Geeks, they can go to Hulu. But if they want to check out our show, what are they going to hear this week? Well, this week on Showbiz Sandbox, we are getting ready for moving day. Ooh. That's right. I've got the boxes right here. Oh, my uh, God. And, and the packing tape. And yes, our podcast is moving. <gasps> we are moving from Hulu to, okay, wait, wait, wait. And Spotify ordered us more money, you know, more than, say, Joe Rogan to become exclusive to their platform. You might be asking that question. And no, they have not. I can answer that almost immediately. Oh, and, and in fact, we're not moving at all. No. Uh, no. Not at all. Yeah. Uh, but everyone else apparently is. The Cannes Film Festival is moving to July, supposedly. That's a rumor, but I think they floated that rumor themselves. James Bond is moving to the fall. The new Cinderella film that's coming out, it's moving to the summer. And pretty much every other big movie scheduled to come out in the first five months of this year, 2021, they are moving as well. Those vaccinations, by the way, cannot come soon enough. Former President Donald Trump is being impeached, and if that isn't bad enough, SAG-AFTRA, the union, the acting union, mm-hmm. well, they are moving to kick him out of their union. But here's the question. Who is Kirk Cameron going to get to star in his next feature film? I mean, you know, could have been could have been the Donald. Uh, as a gift to you, by the way, we won't mention this again throughout the rest of the show. You're welcome. On Inside Baseball, we take a closer look at Netflix because it made a lot of news this week. The streamer passed 200 million subscriptions worldwide. They said it; they won't need to borrow any more money to fund content, and they set a record high stock price. Of course, none of us own stocks because we're just not that wealthy. So uh, is the company peaking? That's my my real question. Or is it firing on all cylinders? Competitors like Disney Plus and Peacock will have something to say about that. And they made news of their own this past week. Of course, during Big Deal or Big Whoop, we'll discuss some of the week's top headlines. But first, as always, we turn it over to entertainment journalist extraordinaire Michael Giltz to fill us in on last week's box office. But here's what I really want to know, Michael. If Back to the Future were made today, do you think that in that final scene when Marty McFly comes, you know, ju- jumps into the DeLorean with Doc and or Doc Brown and they're they're headed off, that he would ask about the World Series in in the future? Or do you think he'd say, what's Netflix's stock price? I need to know Netflix's stock price or Disney's stock price or Apple's stock price so that he could bet on that instead of the World Series? Maybe if it was directed by Steve Bannon. I mean, you know, stock prices, is that the charming way you want to end a, a great comedy? I don't think so. I can okay. also tell when you've done a cold reading of the introduction. No, I did the, <laughs> the reading. Oh, you know. lordy. Well, <laughs> yeah. Then you need to buy new reading glasses. Anyway, we're looking at the worldwide box office for the week ending January 24th. We have pulled the information from everywhere we can, including the China box office charts. Those, Thank you, China. Come on, Comscore. Get back on the game. There's stuff to report. Anyway, there are new movies around the world, and the number one film, according to us, I guess, is A Little Red Flower, a Chinese cancer film, as they describe it in one of the notes. It grossed $15 million this week. It's at $213 million worldwide. And if you think I'm making fun of cancer, I'm not, because I'm getting a colonoscopy this week. And TMI. That is officially (laughs) TMI. No, it's not. You should get it everywhere. If you're 50 and over, you should get your first colonoscopy. How how old are are you today, Sperling, by the way? Uh, Today? Mm -hmm. Today? Today. 
I'm 49. Oh! That will not be the same answer next week. It'll be somebody's <laughs> turn in 50. Anyway, at number two around the world is Pixar's movie Soul. That made another $14 million this week. It was almost the number one movie in the world. Uh, it's at $71 million total. What happened? It opened in Russia. Oh, at, number, okay. at number three is Shockwave 2. The Chinese thriller made another $13 million. That's moving up towards $200 million worldwide. Right below that is our first new film. It's called Big Red Envelopes. It's a Chinese romantic comedy about a guy and a girl who decide to get married or pretend they're married so they can collect all the big red envelopes, that money that they hand you, uh, you know, at the wedding, sort of like, I guess, a bar mitzvah thing. Uh, but you get a lot of money. It's a classic Romantic comedy ploy, a guy and a girl or a guy and a guy. If you're reading uh, My Blue Heaven by Joe Keenan, they decide to get married so they can get all the gifts and split the dough and then run off to, in, you know, go back with their lives. But of course, romance ensues. That made well, $9 million on its opening week. And Variety starts their article about it by talking about a mildly titillating romantic comedy. Mildly titillating. Just the words to warm your heart. Put that on the cover of the VHS tape. Yeah. Right below that is a Japanese film, Demon Slayer, the movie Infinity Train. That made another $9 million. That's at $385 million worldwide. Back to China, where Warm Hug, a broad comedy, made $8 million. That's at $132 million. And then Wish Dragon, that's not doing so well. That made another $7 million, so it had a pretty good hole. It opened to a very modest $7 million. This week it made another $7 million. Uh, it's coming to Netflix in most of the world, I think, or maybe just in the U.S. I think it's Netflix in most of the world, but it's gone theatrical in China. You see a number of companies doing that, or a number of people, they make a deal and they say, all right, we got Godzilla versus King Kong, but we want to open it in China. <laughs> yeah, Because yeah. a lot of these streamers aren't in China, number one. And number two, their box office is open and people are making money. So that hopefully is a glimpse of the future. Right below Wish Dragon is The Soul. It's not Soul, the Pixar film. It's The Soul, a Taiwanese crime drama. That made another $6 million. It's at $16 million worldwide. And by worldwide, we usually mean China. Right below that is Wonder Woman 1984. Not great reviews, but it's still chugging along. Another $6 million that's about to pass the $150 million mark in the world. The Crude's A New Age, that's at $140 million. And we have another two new movies, I should say. The Mark, no, no, beg your pardon. The Marksman is the Liam Neeson film that opened last weekend that made another $3 million. That's at $6 million worldwide. And below that is a new film. It's Days and Nights in Wuhan, which is a documentary. And it's opened in China. So I'm going to go out on a limb and assume it's not the iWeWe documentary about, no. about Days and Nights in Wuhan. It's a government-approved one in which they will be saying everything went great. We did a good job. And that made $2 million on its opening week. So the Chinese people were like, yeah, we're not interested. Though, to be fair, it is a documentary. But normally, the government can pressure people and get people to leave work and go leave the fact they really want to support a documentary film that they think is important uh, for patriotic reasons. They can get people into the theaters. They didn't bother with this one. Right below that is a hustle bustle New Year. I was a little puzzled about why it went out. I knew there was a Chinese New Year. I knew it was separate, but I felt like it was so far away. I couldn't understand. It's not really, though. It's only three weeks till the Chinese New Year. So I guess four weeks early is, is you know, you might do that with a Christmas movie. It still felt a little early for this flick, a hustle bustle New Year, this Chinese film. Didn't do great. It made another $2 million this week. It's only at $4 million total. And then we have News of the World, the Tom Hanks flick, which does not look like an Oscar contender anymore. That made a million dollars. And a Chinese action film, The Rescue, also made another million dollars. That's about to hit $90 million. So yes, 
Chinese New Year is almost here. It lasts from February 12th uh, through, I'm sorry, it'll, it begins Chinese New Year's Eve and lasts really about 16 days, but only the first seven days are a public holiday. So it's a big movie-going time of the year. February 11th through February 17th is that week where everybody has off from work. The actual Chinese New Year begins on February 12th, and it's the year of the ox. Okay. Well, you know, that was uh, last year at this time, was right around when the uh, Chinese government had to, realizing that the Chinese New Year was coming. and The, the plague, the plague was, was happening, yeah. Yeah, that they had to basically shut everything down and, and prevent travel. They kind of put an end to, to everybody moving about. So, uh, what, you know, we mentioned earlier that the uh, movie schedule, Square Dance, was uh, happening again. You know, the what do you call that? We go around circling and try to grab a seat. Uh, musical chairs? Musical chairs, yeah. That's yeah. happening in the fall again. Cinderella, the Camila Cabello, or Cabello, how do you say her name? Camila Cabello. Cabello, right. Uh, uh, she is starring in a new version of Cinderella. That has moved to the summer. Ghostbusters Afterlife, that new reboot, that has moved to the fall. James Bond has moved to car uh, to October. The King's Man, Bob's Burgers, etc., etc., etc. Every movie you can think of is moving. They're all trying to get farther, deeper into the year, hoping, hoping beyond hope that the vaccinations will take hold, enough people will get it, but it really looks more like the fall before we're going to get anywhere near herd immunity. But maybe people be, feel more comfortable going back to the movies in the summer, masked up, and they've had their vaccination. And even if we're not there yet, they'll feel like it's starting to get under control. I don't know. What do you think? I think uh, I, I originally, uh, two weeks ago, said that I thought Memorial Day would be like the big kickoff as everybody hoped. Is that August? Uh, or is that no, no, Memorial Day is the uh, last week of May. Oh, no, no. Maybe Labor Day. That was two weeks ago, okay, yeah. when I said that. Uh, I can tell you now, uh, after, um, after the last two weeks and seeing where, vac where vaccine production, forget about vaccine distribution, but right. vaccine production stands, uh, I would have changed that to the summer. I would have said July 4th is going to be the weekend where they begin to try and come back. Well, I mean, that doesn't mean that, it, that they will be successful, right. but that they will actually begin to say, well, we have enough out there that we can at least try to get people to start acting semi-normal. The problem is that you have, what, 38%, 40% of the movie theaters open in the U.S., and nobody's going. Well, of course I mean, not. Granted, right no, there's, yeah, there's Paris no is shutting back down. Europe is shut down again, basically. Uh, from what I understand, they're not going to be able to really start boosting vaccination production until April. You know, everybody's making as much as they can right now, but to really feel an effect and have enough to distribute, it's really going to be April before they even begin to get enough. And then it takes two to four to six weeks to give people their second dose. You know, so it's going it's to be quite a while, I think. Uh, you but know, when I did the math on, on once I found out where, where uh, the, num the number of vaccines that are here in Los Angeles, uh, where we are right now the epicenter in the U.S. of. Why did they just end the shutdown, the lockdown? Well, they ended it. This is very confusing. So they ended the stay at home orders, you know, the orders that absolutely nobody was following mm -hmm. other than the other than apparently hairstylists and gyms. Uh, they ended the mandatory stay at home orders, which closed down any non-essential business and dine in restaurants and dine out rest, you know, uh, you know, outdoor dining. Uh, in everywhere but the San Joaquin Valley and Los Angeles County is still up in the air. Is it over or not? Nobody knows because to to end the stay-at-home orders, you needed to have an ICU uh, capacity 
of 15% or greater. Right now, LA County is at uh, precisely 0%. So, and yes, it's getting better. But when they say getting better, that means that they're no longer using conference rooms and hallways as ICUs. They're actually kind of slowly migrating patients back into ICUs that are kind of fitted out as ICUs, as opposed to putting them in waiting rooms, which is what where they are now. Okay. Does it make seem like a good idea? I mean, you you're, the epicent, you're the epicenter of the plague in the United States. Why, you know, is this a good decision? You know, my feeling has been uh, from the very beginning uh, that they opened up too soon in, in May of last year, mm-hmm. that uh, if you're going to do a stay-at-home order, put some teeth behind it as opposed to uh, announcing please, a stay-at-home order. Please. Yeah, uh, you know, right now the news, the hourly news tells you about the stay-at-home orders followed by the the rush hour traffic report, which <laughs> makes no sense to me whatsoever. Well, these uh, are the these are the discussions that everyone is having in the industry. Movies, music, theater, television, doesn't matter. Everyone is looking at the production of vaccinations and how quickly they're getting distribution up, and that's getting much, much better pretty quickly. Thank goodness. It seems like we're just running out of supply. It's certainly a discussion they're having at AMC, the movie theater chain. And they had a good week, didn't they? Well, uh, you know, they they have discussions that kind of waver back and forth. Should we file for bankruptcy? When can we file not, for not bankruptcy? Just, no, that's not, a, that's not and a discussion. And now, well, yeah. four times, four times, they, yeah. they were on the verge of bankruptcy over the past year. And Adam Aaron had a big uh, expose, a big profile by Not expose, profile, a, a laudatory profile. It wasn't an expose, but you're skipping the lead. They announced that they raised, from December to now, they have raised $900 million in new yes. equity and debt capital. They said, we are solid. We are not facing bankruptcy. We're going to be good way deep into 2021, no matter what happens. We are, we are on solid financial ground again for the following year you know this is the year and then they're hoping we'll begin to get out of the pandemic but no that that was not an expose in any way shape or form brooks barnes did a profile of him that was just as you know laudatory as you could ask for he could have written it himself i'm not saying brooks didn't do a fine job and raise the complications but i'm sure adam reddit was thrilled oh yeah i'm sure he was uh, i loved the uh, amc entered the pandemic with pre-existing conditions <laughs> that was good that was a great line i did have uh, one issue with the story however um it says in the story that mentions that attendance in North America has been weakening for nearly two decades. Then it links to a chart at the numbers showing attendance holding steady for nearly two decades. Uh, I, well, I, I mean, I think what he's, what he's, you know, I looked at that and I said, okay, well, why would he say weakening? And I can see what he's doing. He's saying, okay, well, 2002 was 1.6 million. And yes, it's gone down. And no, that, was, that, was the peak down of the la- the, that was the peak number of the last 25 years. You don't compare things to the absolute peak. If you look at that chart, you will see that for 16 out of the last 20 years, movies have sold between 1.3 billion and 1.4 billion tickets, 1.3 billion plus. Steady, 16 out of the last 20 years. Want to go to 25 years, which was the full length of the chart? 1995 was 1.2 billion, right? 2000 was 1.397 billion, almost 1.4 billion tickets. But basically, for the last 20 years, they've had four years at 1.4 billion or plus. Those are the best years. They've had four years below 1.3 billion. Those are the four worst years. But it's ranged from 1.2 to 1.6. But if you pick a year randomly, chances are you will see they sold about 1.3 billion tickets. 
year after year after year. That's exactly where we were in in 2019 when you know worldwide box office hit a record high. 2018 was a box office high for North America. Uh, that is not a weakening or trending downward path. That is a solid, steady 1.3 billion tickets sold. We've noticed this for 60 years now. Tickets basically maintain pace with population growth. They go up over time simply because there are more people in the country, either born or coming here. But 20 years, 16 of those years, you're selling about 1.3 billion tickets between 1.3 and 1.4. How is that a weakening decline in ticket sales? Put it in context of population growth, maybe modestly. Guess what? We also hit a worldwide box office you know, gross in 2019, the highest ever. You can say, I wish it had grown even more, but at the same time, just like in the 90s where movie ticket sales didn't explode, and yet we made more money than ever from DVD and Blu-ray, we're now making more money than the worldwide box office with streaming services. So it's the engine that powers well, everything. Why, well, I don't know why you're, I don't know why you're, you're, you're perseverating about this when really, What's that here's what you should be, you should be focused on out of that article. Yeah. What you really should be focused on but is not something the factual error. Said. Not the factual error. It's well. It is wrong to say ticket sales have been declining steadily for twenty years. I'll say this: I can can bring, I can bring you on this program, and I can bring fifteen entertainment industry analysts that literally would would argue against. How can you argue ticket sales have declined? Here's my question: in 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 twenty years, how many years did it go down versus how many years did it go up? It doesn't matter what it does one year to the next. What matters is the overall sales. On average, was it? Up or down year to it was year steady. over the course of 20 years. It was steady. Steady is the word I would use. Steady. 16 out of 20 years, you sold 1.3 billion plus tickets. 11 out of 20 years, 11 out of the 20 years we are now discussing. Yeah. The box office was down year over year. Sorry, not box office. Admissions were down year over year from the year before. And so the nine years of the out of 20. So nine out of 20 was up. So and 50, nine out of 50. 20. So that's, and it was within a narrow range, which shows not a steady decline, not a massive increase, but solid, steady ticket sales for 20 years. That's not well, a here's decline. What, here's what I think is more important than even uh, admissions. Because if you want to talk about admissions, and you, you mentioned that the box office is what drives everything, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, I'm giving well, you an exhibitor argument for you. Well, here's the thing. The exhibitor who said, oh my gosh, the 17-day thing that Adam Aaron came up with. Yeah. Okay. That Adam Aaron agreed to with Universal. That you, you Universal agreed to. Film, you didn't come up with it. Yeah. Yeah. It's well, three weekends Universal, and we're out. Yeah, three weekends and we're out. And and Adam Aaron, the head of AMC, agreed to that. Yep. Uh, and then I don't know what he was thinking because sure enough, Warner desperate. Brothers came along. Warner Brothers came along and said, uh, "Hey, you know what?" Um, We'll we'll better you. We'll we'll get rid of the window entirely. Well, that's not Adam Aaron's fault. They didn't ask permission of any exhibitor. They just did it. They said no, no, we're no, putting I, our I'm, movies. Uh huh. So don't blame right. Adam for that. No, no, no. At the time, Mookie Greidinger over at Cineworld, who owns Regal here in the U.S. and Cineworld uh, in Europe, uh, said, "Hey, you know what? We're going to uh, we're not going to do that. We're not going to do 17 days." Right. The real lead here is the fact that. Brooks's Barnes is now reporting that Cineworld is now in conversations with Universal yeah. about doing exactly that. Well, we knew that. That wasn't news broken in that story. I did not know that. Oh, well, then it must be news that was in that story. I thought that was no. 
No, not at all. I mean, everybody's talking, of course. How can they not be? Except they're, they're theater. You know? Yeah, they're always talking. Yeah. But no, I mean, uh, of course, we knew with one of the big chains breaking ranks that the others were probably going to have to follow suit. Yeah, well, and of course, Cinemark did follow suit. Uh, and it'll be interesting to see how, when movies start humming again uh, and the box office returns to you know some semblance of normal, uh, whether whether these exhibitors push back on film rental price, because if it's not going to be... Well, they already exclusive. are, right? They said, we want 80% of your Warner Brother movies if we show them, and Warner Brothers said, no, I don't know what they ended up at, right? But that was part of the story, too, or one of the other stories. Exactly. So, yeah. So I think it's a, it's a big whoop. The deals made right now will not necessarily apply a year from now. And they're always renegotiating and making new deals. And when they can see box office wildly depressed, the studios may realize they're hurting their own movie, if that's the case. Well, hopefully that is, you know, there are people around that uh, understand that. I know you mentioned uh, Big Whoop. I will say, if you get a chance, look at Ann Sarnoff's uh, conversation during CES. She is the head of Warner Brothers. And she was uh, challenged, I suppose, Mm -hmm. by the people that were in attendance about the fact that uh, she does not come from a film background. She doesn't necessarily know about uh, the motion picture industry. And this move by Warner Brothers to push everything day and date uh, for at least a year may have been uh, counter to what is best for Warner Brothers over the long run. But uh, that said, it is time for Big Dealer Big Whoop, our weekly segment where we discuss the top headlines in entertainment and tell you whether they're really important or just overhyped nonsense. Our first story is about, well, I guess it wasn't, wasn't really a movie. It was a musical, but not a movie musical. It was the high school musical franchise, which has proven a genuine phenomenon. The original Disney Channel movie aired again and again and again with its ratings actually improving at times. It turned the cast into stars, especially Zac Efron and Vanessa Hudgens, that led to the TV series Glee, which became ratings. A, a huge, that was a huge ratings hit and a musical force, generating so many singles that the cast of Glee, and this absolutely boggled my mind yeah. it ranks one of the most successful acts of all time and now high school musical has topped that the new spinoff high school musical the musical the series and no <laughs> i did not stutter uh they helped turn actress olivia rodrigo into a star in the making her debut single just did something none of the glee kids ever did None of their songs topped the charts, but Rodrigo's very first single debuted at number one on the Hot 100. OMG! Take that, Leah Michelle. Big deal or big whoop? <laughs> uh, it's a big deal. It's number one for the second week in a row. It just uh, got news that it's topped the charts again. Here's the total drama. Her song is probably about fellow cast member and sometime boyfriend Joshua Bassett. Now, he was releasing his single about heartbreak called Lie, 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 but had to be hospitalized for some reason. He's okay, but OMG. So, yeah, the drama is on camera. It's off camera. It's exciting. But, yes, yeah, unlike Lee... They have already produced a bigger act than, uh, than you know, either High School Musical or Glee in terms of the charts. So she's off to a great start. We'll see if she can keep it up. So and a couple things. Fun. More- we finally had a good fight. We hadn't had a good fight in a while, Sperling. It's been a while. <laughs> well, well, first off, you sound like my, my t- 
teenage daughters. And I, I mean that both about the fight and uh, <laughs> the argument. Uh, and uh, this talking about uh, what we didn't even name the song. Driver's License is the name of the song. And they've been talking about, oh, my goodness, Joshua Bassett answered the, the you know, uh, Olivia Rodrigo's driver's license with Lila. Li. I'm like, uh, hold on. I'm just filing all of this away in my brain under I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> but but uh, so I was actually at the grocery store listening to, to Spotify and my daughters wanted to listen to Driver's License by Olivia Rodrigo. I know this because all of a sudden my Spotify stopped working and they were listening to it through Alexa, which is attached to my Spotify account. So every time they said oh, the A word play Driver's License by Olivia Rodrigo, all of a sudden my my Spotify would stop. How annoying. Very frustrating. Now that is a big deal. Kind of like this next story, sort of. Senator Josh Hawley, big deal or big? No, I'm kidding. In the U.S., of course, kind of a big deal these days, Josh Hawley. He became toxic for major companies after he was deeply involved in inciting the domestic terrorist attack on the U.S. Capitol. Corporations suspended any new donations to Hawley, Senator Ted Cruz and others. And Hawley saw his upcoming book, The Tyranny of Big Tech, drop like a hot potato, or in this case, perhaps an overheated iPhone. Get it? Because it's ah. tough. Yeah, yeah. Publisher Simon and Schuster sent Holly packing, saying it was taking a pass on putting out his work. Well, it didn't take long for Holly to find a new publisher. His book will now be published by, get this. Hold on, wait, what? It's oh, it's Simon and Schuster, actually. Um, well, I guess it's really the conservative publisher. How do you pronounce that? Reg Regnery? I'm Regnery? not sure. I'm not sure. But uh, that's that's the name of the, the the imprint, if you will, which I guess is owned by Simon and Schuster. No, no, they're, they're not owned by Simon and Schuster. Oh, okay, they're not. Okay, well, uh, here's the thing, though. While Regnery, or however you pronounce that particular imprint, they'll sell the book in the U.S., but as its distributor, Simon and Schuster will sell and distribute it in Canada and around the world. So, in a way, Simon and Schuster is having its cake and eating it too. Kind of. They're acting like a politician. They're <laughs> acting like a politician. Big deal or big whoop? Uh, it's a big whoop. It's just almost impossible to in unentangle yourself. You know, they're like, we're not going to have anything to do with it except distribute it in the U.S. and sell it around the world. <laughs> so yeah. it's not wholly hypocritical, but it's kind of like, really? That's not so much. But they don't have control. They can't tell Regnery not to do it. They don't have that right to say you can't distribute that book. I suppose they could try and say we don't want to carry this particular one, but they're not going to go that far, are they? It's kind of like all the businesses that said we are suspending our donations to politicians who tried to overthrow a free and fair election. They didn't say we during were, an off year. During, during an, an off, off year. year. Well, some said we're not giving any this year during an off year. Others said we're suspending them. No, Almost no one said we will never give money to these people again. So just got to keep an eye on them and see if they're actually following through on what they say. And the answer usually is no. Glee, however, you talked about it being a ratings blockbuster. I wanted to double check. My memory was that it was not. It was more of a phenomenon in terms of social media and attention than it was. Yeah, you're right. Um, and it wasn't. It was top 40 one season only, its first season. By the time it ended in season six, it was ranked 148. <laughs> so, yeah, not. Yeah, no, it, it, it definitely fell off. It, the you know, it was, it was top 50 and it probably had great young demos. It certainly generated a lot of press and attention and a lot of singles, but not, not a huge ratings force. Well, you know, uh, in regards to the, the whole uh, Josh Hawley of it all, uh, and, you know, saying one thing and doing another, 
we talked uh, before the we began recording today about Anheuser Busch, which is kind of saying we're not going to advertise Budweiser on, on well, the Super make, Bowl. They were making a political statement. No, 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 not at all. They were going to donate that the money that we would have used to to vaccine awareness, and then they promptly said, "Oh, but we are advertising every other product that we have." Yeah, they have oh. four ads running during the Super Bowl. So this, yeah, exactly. The, the, Coke and Pepsi. I'm a little more confused by why they decided to set out this Super Bowl. I couldn't find a good explanation. I don't know if you did. No, I don't, and especially given uh, who is now playing in the Super Bowl, you have it's a great Tom matchup. Brady. Yeah. Yeah, the, the the goat, the greatest of all time, says you. Verse, well, says you know, kind of his nickname, goat, yeah, greatest yeah. of all time. You're you're stepping on my punchline because right. the punchline is uh, that, of course, they're playing the Kansas City Chiefs, which, of course, uh, Patrick Mahomes is the the quarterback there, and he's known as the kid. And what is a uh, a, a baby goat? There, is a kid. There, it, there you go. All right. I don't. That's. I don't know about a punchline, but there you go. That's true. And Coke and Pepsi <laughs> are advertising I'm, I'm, other products as well on the Super Bowl, just not their name flagship brands. So again, I'm not quite sure why this is not a story of advertisers abandoning the Super Bowl or thinking it doesn't matter anymore or there won't be big gatherings. So why bother? It's just who knows. Well, Spotify is going deeper into audiobooks. They've paired celebrities with classic novels like Cynthia Erivo reading Persuasion by Jane Austen and Santino Fontana reading The Red Badge of Courage. It's a money saver in a number of ways. First, the books are in the public domain, so only the reader needs to be paid. Plus, just like podcasts, the more audiobooks people listen to, the less time they have to listen to music, which costs Spotify money Every single time you can find the audiobooks in the podcast section, along with introductions by a Harvard professor offering details about the novels and their themes and such, because nothing gets people excited about a book quite like discussing its themes. Remember English class? <laughs> big deal. Big whoop. <clears throat> it was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was hey, the listen, age Michael, of wisdom. Hello, yes. Call, call me Ishmael, okay? Oh, all right. Uh, so get, yes. get it? I, ah, so you well said, done. and then I, I with the Moby Dick. The, the, yeah, the great thing about a tale of two cities, I don't think any other book has a classic opening line and a classic closing line to the level of a tale of two cities. Uh, that's just a. Uh, it's a. I don't really like that. It's not one of my favorite Dickens. It's fine. It's okay. But many others are better. But boy, great opening line and great closer. So this is a big whoop. I'll think it's a big deal when Spotify changes its tabs. Right now it has music and podcasts. So podcasts is where they're storing these audiobooks. When they add a tab for audiobooks, then you'll know they've gone all in. And it's paying off and people are listening to the audiobooks and taking them away from music, which costs them more money. So it's an interesting play. Why not do it? These people are probably happy to do it, just stretch their you know creative limbs and do something new. They don't expect a lot of money for it, but I hope they're getting their dime because you know some of these could take off and be really popular. Plus, let's face it, a lot of these actors right now can't do anything. Well, so, yeah, that's true. Anyway, speaking of going all in, the 24-hour news channel Fox News has a lot of sides to it. Most of its airtime is devoted to personalities offering opinion. People like Tucker Carlson and Sean Hannity. You could compare them to Don Lemon for CNN and Rachel Maddow for MSNBC, except at least those two don't traffic in misinformation and lies. I mean, they're kind of based somewhat in reality. Uh, sure, they're progressive. But uh, yeah, as, as I just said, 
they're rooted in reality. Fox News also has journalists and its news team does some good work. Their polling for elections is high quality and ranked as top notch alongside polling by the New York Times and others. Its website has had some decent content. Well, that may change. As we mentioned a few weeks ago, the opinion folk are taking over the 7 p.m. hour, and they did that last week. And now Fox News is purging its ranks of those pesky little journalists. <laughs> the website team has been devastated with cuts, and on-air journalists are also being handed their hat, including Chris... I don't know. I never knew how to pronounce his name. Chris Steyerwalt? I guess. Who you know? So he he took a lot of heat when the news team was the first to call Arizona for Biden. You know, now President Joe Biden. Sixteen journalists so far have been fired. Big deal or big whoop? Well, I think it's a big deal. The question was: Is Fox News pivoting? Are they going to see a new? You know, are they going to distance themselves from Trump? And that seemed to be sort of what was happening and how they dealt with the election and the post-election via the Murdoch Empire, frankly, with the New York Post and what they did and Fox News and their. Uh, decision desk and things like that. But now we see them doubling down on opinion and doubling down on, you know, the usual stuff that they've been doing and distancing themselves even further from news. Now, if they fire Arnon Mishkin, who is the number crunching geek who's in charge of the Fox News decision desk and the guy that put them out front on uh, some of their election calls, well, then we'll really know that they're getting news. Uh, but it looks pretty bad so far. I would never go to foxnews.com to get information, but I would not dismiss it outright. It was not a bad source of news information. And now it looks like they're going to go in a Daily Mail trend and just try and get clickbait even more than they already were. So it's sad. It's not good. There were some good news people like Shep Smith, who's, you know, okay. And there were some good sources of factual information on their website. That's disappearing. Yeah, I mean, they basically uh, are being pushed by a couple of... um kind of upstart news outlets, Newsmax and OAN. But their numbers are uh, so small. That right. When you look and at their peak they, numbers are nothing compared to Fox News. So they've lost some ground, but not because of news, certainly not because of OAN. So I don't, yeah, I don't no, it I seems mean, like an overreaction to me. Well, but really, Fox News overreact since when? <laughs> well, if, they want, uh, if they're worried about losing QAnon listen, you know, listeners, you know, what, who cares? Yeah, it's, look, this isn't anything about politics. It's more about journalism. And what I will say is right now, uh, the few remaining journalistic shows that they do have on the air over at Fox News, if you notice, the way they sneak opinion pieces in is they will actually cut to clips of Tucker Carlson or Sean Hannity mm -hmm. or their opinion people uh, kind of giving their opinion and then ask whoever they're interviewing. So what do you think of that? Well, okay, then you just turn this into an opinion show because what Sean Hannity said was not news. <laughs> it was his opinion and it, it, and, it and was, that's what he's paid for. And now you're actually airing it during a news show. Yeah. Well, that's a little insider baseball, eh? but that's what's happening in Fox News. What's happening in the rest of the world? Hey, it must be time for Inside Baseball, where we analyze some of the headlines that have the entertainment industry buzzing. We'll explain what they mean for the business and more importantly, how they affect you. Our topic this week is streaming because we were arguing about box office because everybody thinks streaming is destroying box office. What's happening, Sperling? What's happening at, at CBS All Access, for example? We've got stories about CBS All Access, Peacock, and the USA Network. We got the primetime ratings for the top networks, the top Nielsen streaming numbers, and then we go deep on Netflix. So what's well, happening at I, CBS? Well, first off, uh, what I'll say is ultimately what this will mean for our our uh, 
our listeners is that there will be fewer cable channels to watch. And if that uh, means something to those outside the United States, it means that there will be fewer shows from those channels to either uh, be licensed from, say, a European network or to appear on a European or an Asian or a Latin American network. But but you asked about as long Paramount. as they don't get rid of Kids Baking Championship. I love that show. It's <laughs> <laughs> good. Uh, <laughs> You asked about CBS All Access, which mm-hmm. is, by the way, is getting an extreme makeover. Ooh. An ABC show, by the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, the streaming service will be, they're going to rebrand themselves to the original uh, Paramount Plus. You know, I wish I had stock in the, the word plus, that's for sure. <laughs> when does that happen? Uh, they're doing that March 4th, which, by the way, is a much better name. Paramount Anything would have been better than CBS yeah. All Access. Uh, but uh, they will be overstuffed with, believe it or not, even more content, including uh, focused channels, and which they're, by the way, I guess they're calling them hubs. Uh, but that makes sense in some ways because they have MTV, they have Nickelodeon, they have Comedy Central, they've got BET, they've got all of these different uh, kind of cable fiefdoms, which they set up you know, over the past 20, 30 years. So they, they're just kind of moving that over to their streaming service, Paramount Plus. One more thing for you to subscribe to. Mm-hmm. And they also have Pluto TV, don't they? And a dedicated Showtime app. So it's not like CBS doesn't have, I mean, uh, Paramount doesn't have other plays, but they are... No, I guess the question is, are they too late? With Paramount Plus? I don't think so. It's content. It's a lot of content, depending on how much they charge and how it's available. You know, uh, I don't think they're too late. It's you just, know what would be great is if somebody could like take all of these things, all of these subscription <laughs> services, and put them all together in one package so that I could just pay one person or like one price to, oh. It would be great wait, if it didn't cost $180 a month. <laughs> right. And so, okay, so actually let's talk about that for a second because that's where I was headed with my comments of there will be fewer channels, mm-hmm. thus there will be less, less programming, programming at least yeah. from those channels. Uh, and by the way, those channels often syndicated content from other countries, or they took uh, shows that were from other countries and licensed the the format for and remade them for the U.S. So that said, let's go to the NBC Sports Network or M- N- NBCSN. Uh, they, Universal, which owns uh, NBC, they are shutting down that network. Uh, that cable unlike- channel, yes. Well, here's, yes. here's what was confusing about this for me. Uh, when it was the story began, I immediately thought, oh, they're trying to pump up Peacock, their new streaming service. Uh, and as they explained, NBC, as their sports network, held NASCAR and NHL. So that stuff, you know, that was one of their big players. And they were moving it to that stuff to USA and Peacock. And the story emphasized that they were trying to pump up USA, their legacy cable channel, which still has a huge imprint, much bigger than NBCSN. It's been around a long time. And they told the story how USA used to have a lot of high-profile scripted fare. They had Mr. Robot. They had Suits, White Collar, Burn Notice. They were the number one basic cable channel for 14 years. And then they stopped all that, and they they pivoted to mostly unscripted fare. And so I thought, well, okay, so they've got this channel. It's everywhere. Everybody carries USA Network on every bundle. And they're saying, look, we need to pump it up. And NBCSN, you know, why bother with extra ones? They've got a history of, of you know, of, of, of sporting and live events. They've had WWE for almost 30 years. The World Wrestling Entertainment has been on USA Network. 
Monday nights on Monday Night Raw, whatever that was called. So, okay, that makes sense to me. I've got my head wrapped around. It's not about a play for Peacock. It's actually a play about pumping up a basic cable channel they've had for many years. And then, three days later, they say, oh, never mind. (laughs) Peacock is now going to be the exclusive home of WWE. That is migrating from the USA and from its own individual streamer, which had about a million people paying $10 a month to watch it. Peacock will also host live events like WrestleMania for no extra charge. They're going to have 17,000 hours of content. This is all in the U.S. only. So. USA Channel is now losing one of its two key properties. So just at four days after they said, oh, we're trying to pump up USA, like, eh, not so much. It is about Peacock after all. It's all about streaming, isn't it? Yeah, oh, and it's not just about streaming. It's also about cable, and here's why. So what's happening now is you have every network operating on a 2025 scenario, which is by 2025, they think, Rather than 100 million homes in the United States having cable subscriptions, they're operating between 50 and 75 million. They think it's going to be more like 55, 60 million people will have cable subscriptions because they will have canceled their cable subscriptions. And they will be buying Uh, a bundle over the top, so they will still be subscribing to a bundle of cable channels, most of them, right? Yes, but those bundles will have 40 channels, not 400 channels. Okay, and right now uh, you have whether it's Comcast or or Spectrum or Cox or any one of these cable providers paying per subscriber per channel a certain amount. These, these are carriage fees. And what's winding up happening is, you know what, N- N- NBCSN, everybody thought, well, you know, sports, you kind of have to have it. Yeah, they need to have one sports network or two sports networks. And you know the networks they really want? ESPN. They don't want, and Fox Sports, they don't need a third group of sports channels to carry. And so what they're doing is they're trying to get rid of some of these channels that they know they won't, that that cable providers are going to drop anyway and boost up the networks that they want to maintain, such as USA. NBC and Universal want to maintain USA and its value. So, So why did they just yank WWE from it? Uh, I have no idea. That has to be some kind of contractual thing where they're trying to uh, maybe boost Peacock by saying, you know what? Don't worry about uh, don't worry about finding it on cable. You have to subscribe to Peacock, much like HBO Max is, isn't saying, well, our movies are going to appear uh, not only in movie theaters and HBO Max, but we're also going to give them to Netflix. No, they want you to subscribe to HBO Max directly. Mm-hmm. So, again, you want WWE subscribe to Peacock or watch it for free. You know, you can watch it for free with a lot of ads. You can pay $5 a month for some ads and more uh, content, or you can pay $10 a month and have no ads. Right. And so that's really what they're doing there. Uh, with, I think you're going to start seeing this again and again with all of these uh, conglomerates with their like 50 different channels, Discovery, for instance, Discovery Plus. I think you're going to start seeing some of these channels that are kind of on the fringe that you don't even know exist half the time. Unless you really love it, yeah. Yeah, you're going to start seeing those disappear. Instead, all of that content will be found on uh, streaming or not at all. Uh, But again, what that means is you're going to get less content from those broadcast and cable networks and more on the streaming. And likewise, uh, that means, you know, internationally, you won't be seeing that content. And likewise, for us here in the U.S., 
there will be no room necessarily. Well, there can be less content. <laughs> you, we've got, yes. you know, 10 gazillion reality shows and that, that's okay if there's a little bit less content. We'll survive. That's for sure. We've had too much content for a little while now. And the one thing is that people are certainly not turning to the networks to watch TV, at least not on Saturday night. The networks have essentially abandoned an entire night of primetime, which I always thought was a mistake. And you're looking at Saturday night last week, the top four networks combined had 7 million viewers during one well, hour of primetime. That is because nobody's watching and they want it on demand and they don't want to have to sit down, you know, unless you're 70. That's just not the way you live your life anymore. Well, I can tell you that, like, what do you do on a Saturday night now? I never do anything. I'm in Birmingham, Alabama. <laughs> no, I mean, but do you do you sit down and say, what's on television? Or do you say, hey, what can we watch on Netflix? Well, some or people Hulu still or do or that because network TV still has it. But Saturday night in particular, they don't have any original programming. So Okay, well, my suggestion would be, and, and I'm making this suggestion without the books in front of me to, to know the numbers, mm -hmm. but hey, you know what? You need the content anyway. You need original content anyway. Why not put it on Saturday night? Those that watch it on broadcast Watch it on broadcast and you get some advertising dollars there. And oh, by the way, you can then have it on Hulu or Peacock or wherever it happens exactly. to, to stream. Next. And it's silly to just abandon an entire night where people might turn on the television and watch what you got. You know, it's, it's always been a mistake to abandon Saturday night. They've been doing that for decades and I never understood it. But, you know, the USA, why is anyone going to turn to USA Network anymore? They just pulled one of their big things. They don't do scripted fair where they were really dominating 14 years. Number one in basic cable. That's a huge run. That may never be matched again because cable won't be around because people are streaming. And on the streaming world, we have some good news. There's more competition. For At the, least for Netflix. <laughs> well, that's not good news for Netflix. It's good news for, for viewers because for the first time ever, uh, a Netflix, a non-Netflix show has topped the charts. So Wait a second. That was last week's story. Was it? The Mandalorian. Yes, this, that was our... This, no, no, no. I'm sorry. Week. This is the first film to top the charts. Ah, Okay, the first film. Yes, okay. this is the first movie to top the charts. So Soul from Disney Plus, it debuted on Christmas Day, and we're covering the week of December 21st to December 27th. So in three days' time, from December 25th to December 27th, Soul was the number one most streamed thing in streaming per the Nielsen snapshot of some of U.S. watchers. It grossed, People watched it 1.6 billion minutes of Soul. That's the equivalent to... Uh, 16 million complete viewings. Or if you figure people paid about $88 uh, a viewing, that'd be about $120 million opening weekend. So um, uh, Soul is the first film, not TV series, to top the charts. Four of the 10 biggest shows on streaming this week, at least according to Nielsen, were movies. They were Soul. They were The Midnight Sky, the George Clooney flick, also on Netflix. It was How the Grinch Stole Christmas, the Jim Carrey version on Netflix. And The Christmas Chronicles Part 2, starring Kurt Russell and Goldie Hawn, also on Netflix. So Again, this was during the Christmas week, so it makes sense. During the Christmas week. And I want to say to any parent who makes watching the Jim Carrey version of How the Grinch Stole Christmas an annual holiday treat, shame on you. Yes, Shame everybody on knows you, it. for God's sake. It should be Fred Claus. Everybody knows that. You no, know, it should be the original Grinch, the 26-minute version that airs on NBC for free every year. You can DVR it. It can be rented for $4, or you can buy it for $15. And that, again, what stupid numbers. The rental should be like $2. It's a 50, you know, it's as old as I am. It came out in 1966. It's been around for 55 years as of this year. It should be a rental for $2. It should be like an impulse rental or a buy of like $7. It's a 25-minute short. 
Why would they charge $15 for it? That's just ridiculous. If you want people to impulse rent or impulse buy, for God's sakes, think bigger. So I don't, but people could have watched it on NBC for free. So you're watching the Jim Carrey version. Good Lord. That's just awful. <laughs> but remember, these numbers are just a big chunk of U.S. viewing, but not all of it. It's not comprehensive. It doesn't include HBO Max or Amazon yet. Nielsen will be adding them in when it can. And oh, by the way, uh, Netflix, there's a reason that there's so, you know, so many people are watching it. They have 200 million subscribers. <clears throat> Yeah, that's, for the first time ever. Yeah, that's right. They knew they couldn't keep pace with the subscriber sign-up they had in the spring and summer of 2020. This year, they've signed up more people than ever before. I think they signed up a total of 36 million people in 2020. Well, they knew they were not going to maintain that pace because they signed up a lot in the first and second quarter. But they still managed to outpace Wall Street's estimates. It's that silly game where Wall Street guesses what they think number they're going to do, and then they do a number. And if it's more or less, it doesn't matter how it actually matters financially. It's just how close we were to guessing right. <laughs> so they were expected to add about 6 million people and they added 8.5 million subscribers. And so they passed that milestone of 200 million subscribers. That's a huge, huge symbolic step forward. But they did even bigger news, didn't they? Yes, they said, um, we're going to do this thing. We've uh, it had some time. We went to business school. <laughs> uh, we cracked open a few business books. Apparently, Apparently, and this is rumor has it, we're supposed to be making money, not borrowing it and spending it like a drunken sailor. <laughs> uh, so that is effectively what they said. They said, hey, we think that by the end of this year, we will no longer need to borrow money to make they've got They've got 200 million people content. paying a monthly subscription. So they will be cash neutral for 2020. They won't be borrowing money and they will be cash. You mean 2021. I beg your pardon. No, they believe they will be cash neutral when they figure out the fiscal year of 2020. It's the fiscal year and also their numbers aren't all in yet. So it's a fiscal year thing. So the fiscal year is not okay. necessarily the same. So it's really basically the past year. They believe they will be cash neutral. They added 36 million people, dude. And they believe in the next fiscal year going forward, they will be cash positive. They're going to have enough money on hand to keep spending money like a drunken sailor for content. Uh, that you was, know, if we had a huge staff, do you know what I would do now? What? I'd go back to all of those um, those shows we did where we thought Netflix is over. They where they like said, "Oh, streaming will be one thing, and DVDs will be another." And we were like, "They'll never survive this." And all of those, uh, you know, those prognostications yes. that we did back in 2011 when, when people want to go to the water. movies. People want to go to the movies. They'll be dying to do it. They'll have fun. I want to go. I don't know why not. So, but this is a big criticism of Netflix that they were too heavily in debt. They were borrowing too much money creating too much content. They couldn't keep it up. They don't need to keep it up, but they really needed to build a war trust of content so that people would feel like, I got to have Netflix. I got to have Netflix. And I think they achieved that. And investors agree. Their stock had an all-time high the day after that announcement of $586.34. So, Well, yes, they, they also said, uh, you know, the, the question now, as, as you posed at the very beginning of the, the show in the intro, is... Is, are they peaking or are they firing on all cylinders? Meaning, uh, is this it? Like they're going to make less content and thus, thus there will be churn and people will leave because there, there aren't 50 new shows, uh, you know, on it, uh, or, or, you know what? People don't have cable anymore. They're going to keep their subscription anyway. Yeah. Uh, you know, Netflix doesn't need 50 new shows a year. You know, they need 20. 
people will catch up on some of the other 50 from past years. Or like HBO, they just want one hit every two or three years. <laughs> right. But Right. Precisely. Yeah. And if people are cutting cable, they'll have a smaller bundle. They're not going to cut Netflix. They're not choosing Disney Plus over Netflix. I had someone argue with me, though. Oh, no, with Net- Disney Plus, no one's going to keep Netflix. I'm like, of course they are. <laughs> you know, they, they want more yeah. than Star Wars and Marvel. You know, <laughs> it's nice for the kids, but they actually want to watch a lot of stuff. And Netflix is a huge library and they keep licensing things. You know, it's not like they can't keep licensing content. It's not all about originals. Sure, they're losing the office and they're losing this and that. But people make money by double bundling. You know, they carry something. They don't always need it to be exclusive. South Park doesn't have to be an exclusive. You can also sell it to other people because you're going to be keep making money. So if people are cutting back on cable, they're still watching TV. They still got a bundle. Their bundle just includes fewer cable channels and more streaming. And Netflix is always going to be one of the first two things you're going to get. Netflix, HBO Max, Disney Plus. Amazon. Amazon. You don't, you don't buy Amazon, though. You, know, you just get it if no. you have Amazon Prime. Uh, can you even buy Amazon separate from from? Am- I think you can. Uh-huh. I think you might. I don't, well, you know what? I, 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 I don't speak. I don't think you can actually, because I don't think they care enough about that. They just want you to get Amazon Prime. You know, so it's just a little add-on treat. And I don't think anyone sees Amazon Prime as essential. What's the last show you no. watch on Amazon Prime? There's good stuff on there. There's good documentaries. There's good movies. They've got some good shows. But I would not think. Oh my god, I have to have that cable channel. That channel. But. Netflix. They've got some good movies this year. They've got some really good. Oh, they've movies. got some very good docs, but that isn't appealing to most people. You know. Well, and and some good movies. That's right. So our network's dead. I don't think so. It's still good to reach a big, broad audience, right? People still get lazy and turn on the TV and change the channels. They still do it. You know who's not re- reaching an audience anymore? Who's that? Hey, how's that? You know, you tried to throw it to me. I was like, yeah, I'm not going to. I'm going to do my own segue. All right. Uh, you know, Walter Bernstein. Is not reaching, and, and for a while in the middle of his career, he didn't reach anybody either. <laughs> That's right. He died at the age of 101. He's an Oscar-nominated screenwriter. He was blacklisted by Hollywood during the Red Scare after appearing as a hostile witness. That ended his official work during the heyday of live TV, where he was very active. But director Sidney Lumet remembered Bernstein and broke that ban by publicly hiring him to write the script for a Sophia Loren vehicle. But Bernstein got the last laugh because for years he worked. As a front. Yeah, he worked as a guy getting other people to front for him. He would use fictional names or get other people to submit his scripts for live TV or movies and stuff. And he kept working under a pseudonym. And I thought, you know what? Being blacklisted, that would make a good movie. He turned around and wrote the Woody Allen flick, The Front. And that got him his Oscar nomination. He also wrote or contributed to scripts for Failsafe, Semi-Tough, Sean Connery's The Molly Maguires, and did uncredited work on The Magnificent Seven and the TV movie Miss Evers' Boys. So he had a good career, and he, and he made a lot of hay out of being blacklisted. He wrote a memoir about it, appeared in documentary films, so good for him. Um, now, this next person, Bob Avian, you probably know him better than I. He was a choreographer, and, and he won at least one Tony, right? Yes, yeah, well, absolutely. He was a Tony-winning choreographer and producer. He died at the age of 83. He was a quiet genius. You probably don't know his name. And even in his own biography called Dancing Man, he kept talking about other people more than himself. You know, he kept saying how wonderful this person was. And that was self-effacing is the word I'm looking for. He worked with Michael Bennett. They were joined at the hip. Michael Bennett, one of the great choreographers and directors of all time. If Michael Bennett hadn't died of AIDS, Bob Avian, I think his personality, his style, he would have been perfectly happy remaining just out of the spotlight all his career working with Michael Bennett. He earned his bones as an associate choreographer or assistant director 
on shows like Sondheim's Company and Follies. Then he worked with Bennett on Promises of Promises. Then they co-choreographed a chorus line, which Bennett directed. That was the biggest hit of all time in its day. And of course, he won a Tony for that as well. Huge, huge hit. You can't even imagine what a seismic impact it had on Broadway. Think Hamilton. That is how big a smash hit it was. But then he was the lead producer on Dreamgirls, the last big project from Michael Bennett, one of the biggest and most influential shows of the 1980s. Then Michael Bennett died, a disaster. Uh, Bob Avian went out on his own. He choreographed the London premiere of Follies. He did Miss Saigon. Martin Gare from the same producers of Miss Saigon, which was not a good show, but the best thing about it was the choreography. And he did Sunset Boulevard. He died at Holy Cross Hospital in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, of a cardiac arrest. Why do I mention the hospital? Because my mom, yeah, why? My mom worked there in the newborn nursery of Holy Cross Hospital in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. So she was at the other end. She was at the other. <laughs> That's end. right. She was in the birthing section for a number of years. Yeah, and I grew up in Pompano and Fort Lauderdale, so I was like, oh, Holy Cross. I know exactly where he was. So uh, goodbye, well, Bob Avian. Good, good, quiet career, but a real talent. Birmingham, Alabama, you're on the line. Uh, <laughs> that was my way of saying. Long time uh, listener, King. first time caller, Larry. Yeah. Uh, so Larry King, who uh, at least in the U.S. he's known, and he's probably known outside the U.S. because people would kind of oh, mock CNN, him. Or, CNN was on all over the world, you know. Yeah, oh. he was a an interviewer. I mean, this is this is our should be our lead obit this week because you know he is he's huge. COVID nineteen, he died of COVID nineteen, uh, and he had a, an illustrious and storied career that lasted 50 years. That's right. Uh, he made his bones in, in South Florida uh, and then elsewhere work. And then he ultimately got a break working the midnight to 5.30 a.m. slot, which on a nationally aired radio show, which is like my dream slot. I would love to be on a midnight to 3 a.m. or something like that. I would love that. That's my dream. I kind of feel like I'm a polar opposite of Larry King. Famously, he never prepared for any interview. He's like, so what's the book about? <laughs> he would not read the book. He wouldn't read up on the book. So, uh, you write your own songs? And people are like, uh, yeah. <laughs> he just yeah, never, it's Bob Dylan. He never, he <laughs> never prepared, and that was his stick. And as much as anyone, he was the face of CNN. He was a huge radio star, and CNN saw him and plucked him out and said, we want you to do a nighttime talk show, Larry King Live. That was their biggest hit by far. And that aired for 25 years on CNN. Uh, he won a Peabody, an Emmy. He won an Emmy Award. Uh, you know, in DC was where his radio show really broke out after his first success in Miami. Land is the word we're looking for. He did a column in USA Today and a Twitter feed that just reveled in banalities. Like he would tweet, I like September, but I love October. I mean, that's Larry King in a nutshell. But he got mad if you said he asked softball questions. He said, oh, no, that's not my job to attack them. I'm just there to ask who, what, where, when, why, and how. Uh, more power to him, I guess. Sort of like Alex Trebek and Regis Philbin, he's just one of those people that's been around so long, you feel like he's just part of the you know part of the furniture. Married eight times to seven women, and his career ended ignobly. Began kind of ignobly. At one point, he was such a, a gambler, such an addict. He went bankrupt. He stole money from a business partner. That that put a halt on his career for a number of years till he clawed back into the good graces and people gave him a second chance. And then at the end of his career, sadly, he started working for the Putin regime propaganda outfit. Russia today. So that was that was a shame. He well, should not he was, have he should I not should have given out. them any legitimacy by giving them his name. It was a mistake. It should not have done it. Well, yeah, he he was working for himself 
producing his thing and he syndicated to RT. He worked with them. He he paid, they paid yes. him money. No, he worked with them and he lent his legitimacy, such as it was, to a propaganda outfit that is not a news outlet. He should not have done it. Al Jazeera has a lot more credibility than RT.com. So, no, it was a mistake. There's no, like, well, they just happened to buy it. No, no, no. He did a deal with them. He was on there. They promoted him. So, that's a shame. Now, why did you want to mention actor Gregory Sierra? Oh, my because, God. Well, because like, if you're Puerto Rican or you're a person of color, uh, he's a significant figure in television history. He was an actor. He died at the age of 83. And for decades, he was a one-man band raising the bar for positive portrayals of Puerto Rican Americans on television. He played the Puerto Rican neighbor of the bigoted junk man on Sanford and Son, always getting the better of Fred. And he also played other ethnicities, as, as they would do in Hollywood. He played a Jewish extremist on an episode of All in the Family, which was very stark. He played a Malaguayan kidnapper on the over-the-top comedy Soap. He was also in a bunch of films like The Towering Inferno, which we just mentioned like a week or two ago. He was Carlo the bartender in that movie. I can totally picture him. He had a role in the Orson Welles film The Other Side of the Wind. But he's best known for playing complex and believable characters on Hill Street Blues, Miami Vice, Murder, She Wrote, and above all, Barney Miller. That sitcom had one of the best ensembles in history. Talk about freaks and geeks today. Their first two seasons of Barney Miller had an all-star cast. It was also one of the most diverse. No mistake there, you know, no, that's part, hat in hand. The sophisticated African-American Ron Glass, the aging Abe Vigoda, the Polish Catholic Max Gale, the Japanese-American Jack Sue, and the prickly and proud Puerto Rican Sierra. Uh, he left after two seasons to star in his own sitcom, Created by the creator of Barney Miller. Sadly, it only lasted six episodes. So it's, uh, it's, it's such a shame. Barney Miller could have been one of the greatest shows of all time. It was a very good show. But that first two seasons, they had such a great cast. They lost. Somebody should write a book about they it. They should. They lost Sierra after season two. Ava Goda left at the beginning of season three. Linda Lavin left after the second season to star in Alice. A good choice financially, but a horrible loss for Barney Miller. The wife, played by Barbara Barry, just stopped appearing. Uh, and then they added Levitt, uh, this non-jokey, stupid role. They did add Steve Landisberg in season four, but oh my God, if they'd kept that cast together, they should have signed Linda Lavin immediately. They should have told Sierra, you could come back if your other show doesn't work. They sh it just was a, a real lost cause. I guess if it had ended after one season, we just always remember it fondly. But to me, Barney Miller, a very good sitcom throughout its whole seven or eight seasons. But, oh, my God, they had, a, they had a murderer's row in that first two seasons, and it's a shame that they broke up the gang. Well, and we're going to break up this gang, at least for now, uh, because that is the end of our show. In fact, you know what? Just so that you don't miss next week's show, you can subscribe to us in iTunes, the Microsoft Marketplace, Stitcher, Google... They no longer have a Play Store. It's Google Podcasts, and I'm trying to figure out whether we are on it or we aren't on it. I, I re-signed us up. And I, I, you know what? If you can find us on Google, let us know. You can write to us, dirt at showbizsandbox.com. That's D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. You can also call and leave us a voicemail. The number to call is 888-567-SAND. That's 888-567-7263. We're also on Twitter, where our handle is at showbizsandbox. We're on Facebook, facebook.com slash showbizsandbox. Uh, now, all of that information, as well as links to all of the stories we've discussed on today's episode, can be found on our website, showbizsandbox.com. The music that you hear at the beginning and end of each show is by the popular indie rock group MGMT. They can be found on their own website, who is mgmt.com. 
Michael Giltz has a website, and every week it's something new and exciting. What is it this week, Michael? This week it's happybirthday.com. And yes, it's available for sale, but no, I won't be buying it for you, Sperling, because it costs $4 million. <laughs> That's what they're wow. asking for happybirthday.com. But it is your birthday on Friday. Happy birthday, Sperling. And by the way, if you're wondering why live sports is such a big part of Peacock and all that, we just got the ratings. 35 million people tuned in to watch the Kansas City Chiefs win and get into the Super Bowl. So, you know, people are still turning in network TV. Just got to give them a reason to do it. Yes. Uh, now, you know what? I, I should mention that if you can't find any of Michael's coverage of the entertainment industry on happybirthday.com, and he kind of just told you that you can't, uh, why not head on over to michaelgiltz.com? Some of my work can be found on celluloidjunkie.com. Until next week, play nice. <laughs>